Jesus, our cornerstone and our surety, be glorified now in our time. We ask that you would give us eyes to see your word. Would you give us ears to hear it? And Lord, would you give us hearts that submit to it and obey it? May it be active among us now. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Alex Schroeder. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, I am the discipleship minister here at Desert Springs. I am grateful uh, to have the opportunity this morning to open God's word with you. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me uh, to Genesis chapter 30. John Newton wrote perhaps the most well-known and beloved hymn of all time in 1772. The lines are iconic, they're familiar, and they've been sung at the graveside and on American Idol. And I'm sure they're familiar to you. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And while that first line is the most memorable of all the lines, I wanna draw your attention to another verse that we often forget. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. These lyrics, coined and written by John Newton, summarize for us the story that we're entering into this morning in Genesis 30. Jacob, our main character, his life has been complicated and littered with conflict. He's in a foreign land because he swindled his brother. His brother wanted to kill him, so he ran away. And since he's been at Uncle Laban's house, he's been fooled and lied to. He's entered into 14 years of hard service. He married two sisters, which was a trick that Laban did to him. And after the vicious sister feud, he has 12 children. This is a complicated mess. But Jacob isn't a passive agent in all this mess. As one commentator put it, Jacob sowed to the wind and he reaped a whirlwind. Jacob swindled, he cheated, he deceived, and yet he has also been taken advantage of. He's been mistreated. You'll notice that he's both a sinner and a sufferer. The Bible says that we can be both. So despite all of these dangers, all the toils, all the snares that are going on in Jacob's life, the Lord has kept him by his grace. There was a promise that the Lord gave to Jacob at the very beginning of his journey to Padan Aram in Genesis 28, 15, where the Lord said this, behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. The Lord has been gracious to Jacob. He has been faithful. And church, the Lord has been faithful to us despite all of the toils, dangers, and snares that we find ourselves in today. So today we will consider Jacob and his long journey home and the grace that God will continue to give to him to make sure that he gets there. In our passage this morning, we're gonna consider two truths. First, that the Lord provide, provides flocks despite adversaries. The Lord provides flocks despite adversaries. And second, we're gonna see that the Lord provides freedom despite affliction. The Lord provides freedom despite affliction. Join with me in Genesis chapter 30, beginning in verse 25. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, 
Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go, home, go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and the speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black. And he put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Verse 37. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks and the troughs, that is, the watering places, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus, the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Our passage begins with Jacob's desire to return home. This is the first time, if you're following along through the book of Genesis, that Jacob's had much to do in these chapters. He's been very lazy and absent, but now we see him wanting to do something. He wants to leave. And it seems like it's all cued upon Rachel, his beloved wife, having a son. And yet there's a problem. Jacob can't leave to go provide for his family of 12 and growing because he spent the last 14 years working laboriously, not for a salary, not for a wage, but for wives. He has nothing to provide for his family. And so he goes to Laban with a request to leave and a request to receive some material provisions with him. And Laban's response in verse 27 is the first hint to us that leaving this family will be just as messy as marrying into the family. Notice what Laban does in verse 28 and 31. When Jacob asks to leave, Laban, the swindling savant, keeps asking Jacob to name his price. Laban knows that it's much easier to lowball somebody when they begin the negotiations. And so Jacob doesn't want Laban to give him anything, and this should make total sense to us, right? 
What was the last thing that Laban gave Jacob? The wrong wife. So of course he doesn't want Jacob to give him anything. He wants to get out with some provisions. And so Jacob presents a plan, a plan to divide Laban's flock between the two of them. And this wouldn't be uncommon for the day and age. It was often that shepherds and the owners of the flocks would agree upon a certain amount of sheep to be given to the under shepherd. Historical records would tell us that it was normally anywhere from 10 to 20%. But Jacob doesn't present a percentage, nor does he say, here's the exact number I need. Instead, he says, I'll take all the goats and sheep that have multiple colors, the speckled, the spotted, and the mottled. We can almost imagine Laban's eyes getting big as he hears this proposal. We know today that because of recessive genes, these multicolored animals were uncommon. They were few. So when Jacob hears this, he's just jumping up and down inside, and this is a steal of a deal to him. But for Laban, it isn't enough just to get a good deal. It's not just enough to get the ones with the dominant traits. Verse 35 and 36 tell us that Laban has a plan of his own to swindle Jacob even in the midst of this steal. He takes all the spotted animals. He removes them from the flock and he puts the new flock together and puts them under the protection of his own sons, people who would certainly work for the same purpose that Laban had. The irony of all of this is that Laban's not just hurting Jacob. He's hurting his own daughters and his grandchildren. Self-seeking Laban can't help stacking the deck and he'll make sure that Laban, or that he gives those goats and sheep to Jacob, but it'll only be six or seven. But Laban didn't know the Lord and he didn't know what Romans 8.30 tells us. If God is for us, who can be against us? All of the working that Laban does to undermine Jacob will certainly come to ruin. But it's not because Jacob's a better schemer the irony of all of this is we actually have a swindling duel taking place. Jacob's at work, too, hatching his own schemes to plunder things from Laban, the sheep and the goats. His scheme's a little different. It actually, his methods are a superstitious practice of the day. It seems that the belief that Jacob had was that the appearance of the offspring of these animals would be affected by whatever their parents were looking at while they were mating. So Jacob sets up these sticks that he's peeled these streaks in and that there's spots on them now. And the hope is that these animals will miraculously go from all white to speckled and spotted offspring. And what's crazy is the passage ends by saying that Jacob had increased greatly and he had abundant flocks. Jacob probably thought he was one cunning dude. But in the end, his scheming did nothing. In fact, the Lord was the one at work behind all of this. This is sort of like when I go to the playground with my daughter Annie, who's almost four, and she sees the monkey bars, and she says, Dad, I want to do that. And so I pick her up, I, let her, I hold her up so she can grab hold of both, with both her hands, and she doesn't know what to do there, so I have to tell her, okay, go swing to the next one. And she's doing it, and she's so excited. And she gets to the end, and she looks at me and says, Daddy, I did it! But she seems to have forgotten that I held her the whole time. My hands were there bearing all of her weight. But she was the one that did it. And in a similar way, Jacob probably thinks, I swindled Laban. 
I'm the cunningest schemer that's ever lived. No, the Lord was for you by his grace. You did nothing. In the end, God is working for Laban, or I'm sorry, God is working for Jacob, and Jacob is poised to plunder Laban, his taskmaster. That phrase might sound weird to you. Taskmaster, is that what Laban really is? Is Laban a taskmaster? Consider their relationship. Laban has contracted Jacob to work for him for a set period of time, seven years, for a daughter. This is indentured service. That's exactly what this is. This is not an employee-employer relationship. This is a taskmaster and a slave. And even worse, Laban's not sticking to the agreement. At the end of the 14 years, Jacob says, let me go. And Laban implores him to stay. So we have to remember as we're reading this, the very first audience of Genesis, redeemed slaves waiting to enter the promised land. And so what do you think they're thinking as they hear this story recounted to them in Moses' writing? They're saying, that's... I know that feeling. I remember being in bondage to slavery. And it's certain that as they read this story, they're seeing so many correspondences between Jacob's experience and their own. Let me name some of them for you. I have at least seven. I think there's a, a, a lot more, actually. Both Jacob and Israel are described as being afflicted and having hard labor. It's not unintentional that these words are used. Both Jacob and Israel have their wages changed in the midst of their service. Both Jacob and Israel are told that God sees them in the midst of their affliction. Both Jacob and Israel are redeemed by God's initiation. He's the one who comes to them saying, I'm going to take you out. Both Laban and Egypt are plundered as the exodus occurs. Both Jacob and Israel are pursued by their captors. After they leave, there's an army marching after them. And both Jacob and Israel are protected miraculously by the Lord in the middle of the night so that their enemy would not overtake them. These correspondences help us see this pattern of God's work to redeem sinners. God graciously provides freedom to Jacob. And he did it for his people waiting to enter the promised land. And church, God graciously brings redemption to us waiting for freedom from affliction too. So let's consider our second point. God provides freedom despite affliction. We'll pick back up in Genesis 31, beginning in verse 1. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. 
If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said to me, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left for us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. Sometimes the narratives of the Bible move rather quickly. Between the end of chapter 30 and the beginning of chapter 31, we move about six years. And in those six years, a lot has changed. Jacob was once favored in Laban's house. Now he has a target on his back. Laban's own sons see him as an enemy, and Laban does not regard him with favor. So after 20 years, 14 for the wives and six years for the flocks, it's time to go. The word of the Lord comes to Jacob in verse three and says, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. If you remember last week about God's silence and absence in Genesis 29 and 30, it should be shocking to us that out of nowhere, out of 20 years of silence, God speaks. God was not totally absent in those 20 years. Certainly he was working in the background, but now the Lord is working quite differently. These words that Jacob hears, they're familiar. We read them at the beginning of our time today. These were similar words that he heard at the very beginning of his journey. They're bookends. Go out, I'll be with you. Come back, I'm still with you, Jacob. And so now it's time to pack your bags. Jacob has all the pieces that he needs for making a good decision biblically. He has a desire, he's got circumstances are finally falling in place, and he knows that it'll accord with the Lord's will. And so Jacob responds in faith. He trusts the Lord's command, and he, and he obeys. And this is a good reminder for us, isn't it? After 20 years of negligence, disobedience, absent-mindedness, the Lord can work to save those that you love who have been far away and have done nothing, and have rejected the Lord. The Lord can work. But it's also a good reminder, because perhaps there's some of you that for 20 years have been absent and far away from the Lord and negligent in your relationship to him. Do not harden your heart today. If you hear his voice, respond with faith and repentance. Believe the promises and pursue him. Fleeing Laban's house would certainly cause a rift in a family that already had rifts. So, Jacob begins by talking to his wives about this decision. And what does he say? Does he just go on a tirade about how awful Laban is? 
Does he take a, a moment to slander, sling mud, and just accuse him of all the terrible things and go into motives and just keep digging down? No. The majority of what Jacob talks about is the Lord's faithfulness to him. Isn't that something? As he reflects on mistreatment for 20 years, his greatest reflection is that God was kind. And what has the Lord done for him? He's been with him. He's withheld harm that could have come. He's prospered him. And he's seen all of it. We see that in verse 12. The angel of the Lord says to Jacob, I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. Imagine the frustration, the anger, the bitterness that could take root in Jacob's heart as he reflects on those 20 years. Imagine all the tears that were shared, all the agonizing moments of wanting to leave or having nothing and mistreated. How many times he thought about, you gave me the wrong wife and you lied to me. That thought doesn't just go away. Some of you don't have to imagine that kind of suffering though. Some of you are quite acquainted with it because you're living it right now. Affliction's not an abstract idea, it's home for some of you. And perhaps the hardest part of intense suffering and affliction is feeling like we are totally isolated and alone. Certainly people know about what's going on in our lives, but they don't know it like I do. They don't know the pain, they don't know the sleepless nights, they don't know the agonizing inner turmoil, but God does. God sees, he knows. The God that created the universe with transcendent power is personal and he's concerned about you and the things that are ailing and plaguing you. Psalm 56 verse eight says this, you have kept count of my tossings. Every time you've turned over in bed, not able to sleep, the Lord knows. Psalm 56 goes on to say, God's put our tears in a bottle. He knows them. Whether it's the daily grind, the chronic or terminal illness, the grief and loss, the betrayal and pain, the Lord sees your affliction and he knows what you're going through. As Jacob talks to Rachel and Leah, he sounds like a new man. He has a new outlook on these 20 years. He's seeing things with the eyes of faith that he had never done before. It's hard to say definitively, but it almost is like Jacob had a conversion experience. We could think back just a couple chapters. This doesn't seem like the deceptive goat man anymore. This is a different Jacob. So how do we get there? How do we get from self-protective deceiver that's making a no-strings-attached relationship to God, back in Genesis 28, to a man who's obedient and dependent on God? Affliction. That's what it is. Brothers, the Lord doesn't just see our afflictions, but he uses them. He uses your afflictions to make you something that you could only be through the furnace of suffering. And he loves you enough to bring you through it. It's the way for his people. It's the way for those he loves. We heard this earlier in our scripture reading. Don't be surprised at that fiery trial when it comes to test you. Don't think it's something strange. It's the way. This is how the Lord works. Psalm 119.67 says this, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, now that I have been afflicted, 
I keep your word. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what trials and afflictions you're going through, nor how long they've been lingering, but God's word is clear that he is using it in your life to produce steadfastness, obedience, dependence, humility, things that couldn't be accomplished without them. He is good and gracious to you. Charles Spurgeon said this, men will never become great in divinity until they become great in suffering. Praise God for these things in our lives, as hard as they may be. It's hard in the midst of them. It's really easy to just want afflictions to go away, but it's better for us to see ourselves being grown and shaped by them. Now, I wanna be clear here. I don't want anybody to mishear what I'm saying. The Bible encourages us to do all that we can to flee affliction. The Bible says we can do that. We have the freedom to try and get out of suffering, assuming that we aren't committing a sin in doing so. And I'd also just wanna say a word that if your suffering and affliction is dangerous to you and a threat to you personally, or if you are in an abusive situation, it is right for you to remove yourself from it. It's already been said, there will be pastors here at the front of our end of our service. Please come and speak to us about it. Our heart is to help you in the midst of this. And if it's not us, please speak to someone. Even though we have that freedom to remove ourselves, there will certainly be suffering that we cannot get out of. And in those moments, we must posture our heart to say how right, how true, how sweet and lovely, how mighty and comforting is God's word. We must trust him in the midst of it and find that he's near to the brokenhearted, like Psalm 34, 18 says. God sees our affliction and he uses it. And Jacob's life is an evidence of this. And as Jacob talks to Rachel and Leah, they conclude with him, it's time to go. Whatever the Lord has said to you, do it. Pick back up with me in Genesis 31, verse 17. So Jacob arose and he set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household god. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and he set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and he pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you've tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me? It did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs with tambourine and lyre. Why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. 
But the God of your father spoke, or sorry, verse 29, it is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you've gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what, it, what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but he did not find them. And, he said, and she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of the woman is upon me. So he searched, but he did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I've been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. I have not eaten the rams of your flock. What was torn by wild beasts, I did not bring it to you. I bore the loss of it myself. For my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Jacob puts this plan in motion. He escapes from Laban, and the, our text is so repetitive here. He's not taking anything. It's his livestock. It's his property. He had acquired it. He's leaving in nobility and honorability. In the Lord's providence, there's a perfect window for him to leave, sheep shearing season. Ancient records would say that it could take a team of people multiple days to shear an entire flock of sheep. So this is the perfect cover. He's not stealing, but his beloved wife is. We are told that she takes one of his household gods. This is likely a little figurine made of wood or stone that would depict a pagan deity. And it certainly was something that Laban worshiped and played a significant part in his life. Now, the text doesn't go into all of Rachel's intentions here. Many have offered an explanation for what she's doing. They vary. Some people think she's taking it to have a right to the inheritance. Some people she's doing it because she wants to worship the idol herself. Others think it's just personal spite. She's so upset at her, her father's treatment of her, she'll take it just to anger him. Guys, it is too easy for us to look at Rachel here and be critical. Why would she take such a stupid little figurine? Well, it's good for us to remember that we're prone to grasp hold of our little delicate idols when our, when our life gets desperate too, aren't we? For Rachel, it was a little figurine, but for us, an idol is anything other than God 
that we look to and we love that gives us safety and security, happiness or meaning in life. We all have one. The sad part's we actually all have many. And it's also sad that we're so corrupt, we can just take any good thing and twist it and make it something that we worship and love. So I would just submit to you guys today, what, are, what do you do when you're criticized? Where do you run to? What do you grasp hold of? What do you do when life gets stressful? Do you lean into alcohol? Do you lean into entertainment? We all have that thing we lean into. Idols are terrible gods. There's some odd details in this passage that we don't have time to cover in full. But I think the point that we need to see from this is that idols will not and cannot support us. Idols get stolen, they get godnapped, and they get defiled. They're terrible to put your trust in. So don't prop your life up on stilts with your idols because they will come crashing down. So Jacob and his family leave in haste, and when Laban hears about it, he pursues them in rage. All the words that Moses used to describe Laban's pursuit are the words of an army pursuing its enemy. Pursued, overtook, pitching tents, hotly, all of these words. All of these things describe Laban storming mad and ready for battle. But the Lord keeps his people safe. Laban has manipulated, deceived, and overpowered people his entire life. But on the night before he faces Jacob, he will meet a foe and face off against someone that will see through all of his falsehood. It's the Lord. The Lord comes to Laban and rebukes him in the middle of the night and says, do no harm to Jacob. So when we finally get to their confrontation, what else does Laban have? He can't hurt him. So all he can do is spin a narrative differently. Laban presents himself as this poor, helpless victim after all of Jacob's trickery. All the flowery language he uses is almost laughable. What have you done? You've tricked me. You've driven away my daughters. Well, they're also Jacob's wives, right? Uh, you took them away like captives with the sword. Jacob asked them if they wanted to come, and they said, yes, let's get out of here. <laughs> what, are you, what is Laban saying? He even goes on to say, well, you could have given me the chance to send you away with a big band and a party. Ah, there would have been no party, guys. This is all language meant to manipulate and coerce. And surely Jacob and his crew are just listening to this dumbfounded. Like, what are you saying? And I actually wonder if that's why, Jacob, or why Laban turns so quickly and pivots from this flowery language to empty threats. That's what bullies do. They go from using harsh language to then threatening. And that's exactly what he does. Verse 29, it's in my power to do you harm. Laban is a classic manipulator and abuser. But in the end, Laban's only beef is the issue of the idol. This shows where his heart's really at. He won't, he's not sad about losing children or grandchildren to a faraway land. It's all about the idol. And after ransacking and searching through all of Jacob's things and finding nothing, Jacob's had enough. And in this moment, we see 20 years of pent-up frustration and mistreatment poured out in speech. And Jacob just continues to say the same thing. 
I was honorable. I did not mistreat you. You took advantage of me and God protected me. Laban came all the way to Gilead to accuse Jacob and now Laban stands accused and rebuked by God. What a turn. What a flip of the narrative. What should Laban do when he hears that? You've been rebuked by God. He should repent. He should hear his sin and turn from it. But instead, he digs his heels in more and more. In a room this size, there are certainly some of you that share some of these characteristics of Laban. You harm those around you for your own gain. The Lord sees what you're doing, and he is an objective judge. You can't spin the narrative with him, and the flowery language will mean nothing. Be warned by this. Be warned by the life of Laban that you will stand before the Lord and you too will be rebuked if you remain in this. But there is hope. There's an opportunity to turn and be forgiven. Please talk to us about this. The Lord freely offers any sinner to come to him and turn from sin and be forgiven. Let's conclude chapter 31. For the sake of time, we won't finish and read all of these verses, but I do want to give you a sense of what happens to finish this section. In short, Jacob and Laban's relationship is over. All they want to do is kill one another. And so they end with a covenant. And this is surprising to us because so far in Genesis, covenants have been a really sweet thing. This is a different covenant. This is a covenant that says, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to pursue after you. I'm not even going to see you anymore. That's how bad it gets, and that's where it ends. But the point we need to see is that the Lord freed Laban from this destructive, damaging situation. The Lord freed Jacob. Our God is a God of redemption. He sees our affliction, he uses it, and he rescues his people. He rescues us. He did it for Jacob. He did it for Israel. And there is a greater redemption that we know about because we live on this side of the cross. And the Lord offers that redemption for anyone that would come to him in faith. We all have afflictions. They vary in the size and severity, but we all have them. But the greatest affliction is not your circumstances, as hard as they may be. We are held in bondage that is tighter than any indentured service. We're deceived by a greater deceiver than Laban. And we're afflicted by our own sin. And death is our enemy. We are held captive to those things unless we turn to God who works miraculously to redeem sinners. God in his great mercy sent Christ to come and rescue those afflicted by sin. Christ redeems the afflicted by being afflicted. Jesus died a cruel, gruesome, unlawful death at the hands of sinners. He was mistreated. He was killed. He suffered at the hands of an ungodly man like Jacob did. And yet he rose again. Death, sin, these things that hold us captive have no sway and power over Jesus. 
And all who are held captive by these things, when we put our faith in Christ, are freed completely and totally, freely by God, removed from bondage and affliction. If you're not a Christian this morning, you need to see that your greatest problem is not your circumstances. Your greatest problem is that you are afflicted by your sin. You are in slavery, and Christ has made a way for you to be removed and redeemed. And for us Christians, we need to be thankful again. Our hearts need to be stirred again at the reminder of how awful our plight was. We had no hope, but God initiated redemption for us. And even as we reflect on our own circumstances and lives and ask, God, when will these afflictions be gone? When will these awful things I'm living through be removed? We need to take encouragement from how God acted in the life of Jacob. Jacob felt that affliction for 20 years. That is a very long time. The Lord's saints must be familiar with long, patient suffering and hope in the midst of it. Because our hope is not in being removed from afflicting circumstances in our life today. We hope for it, we pray for it, but it's not our ultimate hope. We know that one day we will be totally and completely removed from all affliction. Nothing will scare us anymore. Nothing will threaten us anymore. No sin will bubble up inside of us and incite something in us that we're unfamiliar with. We will be totally freed from all of our captors and all afflictions. 1 Peter 5.10 says this, and after you've suffered a little while, that little while is our entire lives, brothers and sisters. But it's even good for us to be reminded of that kind of perspective, isn't it? This life is but a little while. And after we've suffered a little while, what will happen? The God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's the hope to which we look for. Put your hope there today in the midst of afflictions. Brothers, sisters, grace has brought us safe thus far. And there is more grace to get us all the way home. Let's pray. God, suffering and trials afflict us on every side. This world is certainly broken and we feel it. But God, we look to you because you are at work in a broken world to redeem and save it. And God, you are working to save us. Oh God, give us great hope and confidence in your work in us to totally and completely redeem us. God, thank you for the grace you've always bestowed upon us and the grace that you will certainly keep giving. We pray all these things in Christ's name, amen.